the first one is Dr. Samir Abed Rabo. Um, Abed Rabo is a Palestinian refugee born in Kalania refugee camp in Jerusalem, Palestine. He holds a PhD in international law and is the author and editor of several articles and books, and is the lead author of both the Munich Declaration for One Democratic State in Historic Palestine and the Dallas Declaration of the Movement for One Democratic State in Historic Palestine. Uh, we have also Esther Stanford Kosse. Uh, she's a reparation specialist, legal advisor, international advocate, political advisor, scholar, activist, media spokesperson, environmentalist, uh, historian, educator. Trainer, yes, it's, uh, she's, done, she's doing a lot, <laughs> keynote speaker and mentor. Uh, on a personal, political, and professional level, repairing the historical and ongoing damage to African people and Mother Earth motivates Esther Stanford Kose to do her work. Uh, and uh, last but not least, we have Guillermo Barreto uh, of the Simon Bolivar Institute for Peace and Solidarity in Venezuela. Uh, the goal of the Institute is to, co to coordinate global solidarity with the Bolivarian Revolution. Uh, and the Venezuelan people and the solidarity of the South uh, American nation towards struggles for social and economic justice of peoples uh, throughout the world. Thank you so much uh, for coming. Uh, it's an honor to, to have you all here. Uh, I would ask them to give you a round of applause, but I, I, it, um, uh, so um, to begin with, uh, I wanted to just uh, ground ourselves a little bit uh, in the struggles uh, that you are a part of uh, and ask each of you to explain what you consider the most important historic and ongoing damages uh, from colonialism, uh, perhaps for the entire global south, but especially for the specific uh, context that you uh, organize in. Um, and uh, maybe I can start uh, with you, Esther, and uh, as I know you already for a bit longer, I also would be happy to hear specifically uh, about the concept of the Ma'angamizi. Maybe you can also explain what that means. Sure. Hi, greetings, everyone. Um, really good to be here uh, for this important discussion. Um, and thank you for inviting me to participate. I would say, uh, certainly speaking from the perspective of the uh, International Social Movement for African Reparations, I see the way in which not only transatlantic enslavement happened, but how that was also interconnected with the colonization of the rest of the world, the dispossession and genocide of indigenous people and African people and other colonized people. So that reordering of the world post-1492 has been quite significant in terms of historic injustices, but also how that continues in legacies today of uh, our sense of who we are, how we connect to each other's struggles. And particularly speaking as an African woman um, who is born in the diaspora, I would say for African people, one of the most um, destructive aspects of colonization was the carving up of Africa, uh, 1884, 1885, after that conference, the so-called Berlin Conference, where the carving up didn't happen there, but what that conference did is it, it laid the terms of conquest uh, for the continent of Africa, who had already been, um, you know, ripped apart, people had been dispossessed because many of our people were trafficked out of Africa from the 1400s. So we already had 
um, weakened uh, states and societies and obviously communities which made us vulnerable to um, that phase of European colonization. But before the 1884-1885 conference, uh, over 80% of Africa was under traditional leadership, rulership, governance, um, or, and after the Berlin Conference of 1884-1885, we began to see how Africa just got totally carved up. New identities were created, new nations were created, uh, many fragile and unviable nation states all really serving the, the ends of European imperialism. And so that has had huge impact on civil war and conflicts that have you know, happened since then because of the way in which indigenous African ethnicities and nationalities were separated from each other and given new um, identities. And I think a lasting legacy has been uh, that doctrine uh, similar to the doctrine of uh, discovery of terra nullius. So it meant that Africa was open to conquest and therefore not only the people and the land, but the wealth extraction that has happened since. Ah, the Maangamizi, finally. So the Maangamizi is a Kiswahili term that many of us as African reparationists use to describe uh, the experience that we have gone through. So we don't talk about slave trade, you know, these, these terms that really were imposed upon African people. We don't just talk about chattel enslavement and colonization. We recognize neo-colonialism. So the Maangamizi really speaks to that intentionality to destroy people, uh, which was the basis of conquest and colonization. So it wasn't just about genocide and um, ecocide, it was also about the ethnocide. So that cultural destruction of people and their reality. So even though the people remain, we, we are somebody else and we actually then um, are forced through various ways to, to mimic our colonial oppressors because everything about us was demonized um, and subjugated. So the Maangamizi speaks to that destruction and the continuum of it. So we recognize that each phase, so beginning with the chattelization phase, leading into colonization and then neo-colonialism and all of the crimes against humanity, the war crimes, um, the genocide, the ethnocide, uh, the crimes of aggression, the ecocide, all of that speaks to what we refer to as the Maangamizi, which continues today. Thank you very much, Esther, for that uh, clear uh, explanation. Um, I want to zoom in a little bit on the neo-colonial phase, because that's what we're, what we're in right now. Um, that word was coined by Kwame Nkrumah, uh, the first independent uh, decolonized leader um, uh, of Africa, first president, uh, and he was he was overthrown shortly after uh, writing the book, if I remember correctly. Uh, could you could you maybe explain a little bit how that neo-colonial setup works? So neo-colonialism is where we have supposedly independent states, but literally they are controlled, and especially their economies, 
uh, are controlled by the metropolitan um, colonial states. And so really what you, we have in many respects is flag and anthem, so-called independence, but the actual basis for self-determination, for sovereignty, true exercise of people's sovereignty, and obviously the wealth that is needed for a people to develop along their own path uh, is interfered with, is disrupted. And actually uh, people are not able to utilize the resources that they have stewardship, not ownership, but stewardship over. And so neo-colonialism is recognized in, in uh, Kwame Nkrumah's uh, analysis as being the last stage of imperialism. And that's what we've been left with, an imperial world order um, that is yet to be totally uh, disrupted uh, and eradicated. Thank you. Thank you very much, Esther. I will get back to you uh, later, but I, I, I want to hear from our uh, other panelists too. Um, Guillermo, um, I have more or less the same question for you. If you could explain um, the, the historical colonial and ongoing colonial uh, damages uh, within Southern Okayala, perhaps also specifically Venezuela, or more broadly speaking, uh, within the Global South. How do you see that within your organizing and your uh, context? I, I believe you're still muted. That's Do you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, well, I, I wanted to, to talk about the, the, the public policies in, of reparation made in, the, in Venezuela. So I may have uh, misunderstood the, the, the whole thing, but if you don't mind, I can, I can read something for, for about public policies on reparations because it's related with the, the whole thing. Um, is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Actually, I was, I was going to get to the reparations part for sure. Uh, okay. I, I, to get a, a sense for the audience first, maybe not everybody's as uh, familiar with Venezuela uh, and, and its struggles as you are. Uh, so uh, maybe you can just say a few words uh, about what, what these reparations are trying to address. Okay, how, how will you do? Uh, I will read something. Uh, this is, I hope it's quick. quick. Uh, during modern history, uh, colonization processes have been undertaken with a unique load of violence characterized by the inferiorization and genocide of entire peoples. Modernity, the dominant civilization model, was born upon five pillars. First, an international division of labor that made one part of the world become a periphery that provided goods uh, for the other part, the center. Second, a racial division of humans were hierarchized to place whites on the top and others as inferiors. Third, a patriarchal system that subordinated women. Fourth, a Eurocentric epistemology that considered knowledge produced in Europe as universal and superior. And fifth, a system that separates humans from nature and that makes nature an object for exploitation. That is the civilization we live in. Racism, racism is an important ground for this civilization and the exploitation of humans as slaves allowed the original accumulation of wealth which triggered the development of capitalism in Europe. Even though slavery was abolished, at least formally all over the world, both the consequences of past slavery and racism, and I mean systemic racism, still prevail. 
Um, I, I wanted to talk about the, the multilateral things about uh, reparation, but I'm going straight to Venezuela. What we have done about reparation in the context of this civilization we live in. The Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela has undertaken important actions in the context of the international decade, the international decade uh, against uh, racism, which include reparations related justice as public policies and the creation of specialized public institutions like the National Council for the Development of Afro-Descendant Communities and the National Institute Against Racial Discrimination. Several laws aimed at combating racism and discrimination have also been passed. In the context of reparations, two international conferences were organized in 2018 in the city of Caracas. From March 22nd to 24th, uh, in, uh, 22nd, 24th in 2018, an international meeting over the Afro-descendant decade was held. During this meeting, President Maduro signed a decree of the national decade for people of African descent to promote actions in favor of the objectives of the international decade. In May 2018, we had the first international meeting of reparations with the president uh, of Venezuelan President Maduro and the prime minister of St. Vincent and Granadines, Ralph Concalves. Both meetings aimed at proposing specific actions to incorporate reparations as part of the governmental public policies and to assume reparations as transfer axis of our policy, uh, foreign policy. policy. In, in this first meeting, Venezuela committed to promote lines of research dealing with legal, multilateral, political, historical, and philosophical issues related to reparations. All delegates, including Venezuelan social movement and international delegates, agreed to first join legal efforts to demand and guarantee that the states, legally and morally responsible for the African slave trade, compensate, that is, repair the damages and traumas caused to the African people and their descendants. Second, create a Venezuelan research center specialized in reparations processes. Third, take the issue to the highest level in United Nations, ALBA, TCP, CARICOM, African Union, non-aligned movement, uh, among other multilateral arenas. And fourth, carry out international campaign to disseminate and promote discussion and debate about reparations. In Venezuela, almost half of the population self-recognize under some category related with the African diaspora, almost half the population. This important part of the population has organized themselves and struggle for recognition, justice, rights, and reparations. Most of these advances have occurred under revolution. Nevertheless, there's still a lot to do. The constitution of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela mentioned our indigenous people as part of, the, of our inheritance and as a life culture whose identities, languages, and beliefs are recognized. This situation has not been reproduced with the Afro-descendant population. Recognition is not something to claim. It's not something that you have put in a, in a paper. It must be part of every person. And from there, the need to generate educational spaces to debate the problem of slavery, the history of the slave trade, the origins of racism, the current structural racism and the actions 
to take to overcome these evils. The study and recognition of the history and culture of the African diaspora is also vital to generate identity and sense of belonging. Therefore, between May and December 2019, the Venezuelan Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the International Center for Decolonization Studies organized a series of theoretical introductory seminars dealing with the subject of slavery reparations. An average of 90 participants assisted to the seminars. During the seminar, the participants not only attended formal classes, but got involved in workshops and roundtables to identify national issues in need of reparations and proposing actions plans. A second seminar took place between April and August 2022, last year, in the Ministry of the Popular Power for Science and Technology, uh, along with the Center for the Study of Social Transformation and the Simon Bolivar Institute for Peace and Solidarity Among People, the place where I work. Uh, the seminar had as a most prominent result the identification of 19 lines of research in the area of reparations. The proposal was positively received by the Minister of Science and Technology, Gabriela Jimenez, who announced in October 2022, a national call for a proposal in the colonial research in Afro-American identity and reparations for slavery and colonization. An unprecedented call that placed Venezuela as a reference in the sector and reinforcement of the actions established in the Durban plan. 26 projects out of 71 were selected in the month of February, 2023. These projects are now ongoing. That includes subjects as self-recognition, territorialities, productive experiences, spiritualities, Afro-descendant education and health. An experience that from the very beginning promotes research on subjects about Afro-descendant reparations expecting moreover to generate in addition research networks beyond the traditional academic environment. You have to say that the, the same proposal of the, of the lines of, of research were done by the, the movement, the social movement, uh, academics, uh, students uh, and activists of the Afro-descendant movement and uh, in, in collective, in a collective way. And now the projects are ongoing, but all the responsible for the project are giving seminar uh, talking about the theoretical background of their project. And so they are connecting each other. We are trying to promote a network of researchers in a different way as the traditional academics uh, used to do. Not worthy is the creation on October 12th, 2021 of the Presidential Commission for the Clarification of the Historical Truth justice and reparation during the colonial domain and the consequences on Venezuela. It's a long name for a commission of truth that has the general goal to develop an historical investigation process with the support of several social and human sciences to approach the truth about the events occurring during the 300 years of European colonialism, looting and genocide in Latin America and Caribbean and identify the causes and the extended effects on time, focusing on justice and reparations, either the symbolic, economic, environmental, moral, or social. This commission integrates recognized researchers and activists who have the task of proposing sound actions of reparation based on available information, both academic or oral transmitted. 
It is important to mention that the results of research will fit plans, programs, and policies, both in the national and the international ground. Currently, the Commission is receiving proposals of research, and after a process of selection, a number of those will be found by the Venezuelan National Science Foundation. Uh, as I said at the beginning, racism is an integral part of modern society, and removing it from minds and hearts is not an easy task. Liberal society reduces everything to the individual, but condemning the racist does not necessarily make the task. You can put in jail the policeman who killed George Floyd. He's certainly a criminal, but you do nothing if structural racism inside the police and the society is not condemned. In Venezuela, we have laws who prevent racism and punish racist expression or actions, but that not is, uh, is enough. We think it important to the reinforcement of those networks of investigation that provide basis for educational programs and public policies and create a real sense of identity and self-recognition through the study of our history. Not the history told by the colonizer, the history found in the different traditions that made us what we are now. A history not only for our population, a history that must be transmitted also to the people of the global north. The disclosure of this history is by itself an act of reparation. And with it, we will have a stronger background to urge for reparations to former colonizer and enslaved trader countries and corporations for the damage they caused to people of the global south. Reparation for us is an act of justice, not revenge. And it is precisely justice what we need if another world is possible. Thank you. Thank you very much, Guillermo, for that uh, extended statement. It's very clear that a lot is already happening in Venezuela on uh, reparations. Um, and, and just for, I don't know how familiar everybody here is with the Bolivarian Revolution, um, could you explain what it took actually, um, because Venezuela is not a typical state in the world today. It's quite a revolutionary process that has, has led to all these developments. Um, and we were talking earlier about neocolonialism, about the Bama Nkrumah. Uh, of course, the whole Bolivarian project has also received a lot of backlash from imperialism. Could you uh, talk a little bit about that situation before I go uh, to our next, uh, to Samir? You, you say our background, our- No, no, the, the, the backlash you face from imperialism. So what, what did it take actually to, to get this progress uh, this process uh, started in, in Venezuela. Um, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, about the coup in 2002, um, the sanctions. Um, what does it take for a re revolutionary project like this uh, with all these reparations initiative to, to, to stand on its feet? You know, that, that we have to maybe to start with Simon Bolivar in the, in the, in the, in, in, in the last in the, in the 19th century, you know. Bolivar was an internationalist, was an anti-colonialist, was an anti-imperialist man. And we have the roots of that in, in, in our history. And when the, the revolution started in 2000, um, for the first time was an, an anti-imperialist project. And of course, for the first, from the very beginning, the United States started doing things against us, doing actions against us and try to overcome the government. So, we, our, our project 
looked for uh, a real independence, not the, the former, uh, the formal independence that we got in the 19th century, but that real independence. That means our the control of our resources. That means uh, uh, create a sense of identity in our population. So the the project in itself is a reparation project because we try to to change um, uh, that uh, that sense of inferiority that neocolonialism uh, neocolonialism creates on on populations. That's the, the root of neocolonialism, to inferiorize people, to make them dependent on, on metropolis and to believe uh, metropolis like a goal to be uh, achieved. Something that you never will achieve because uh, the, the system, imperialism is a, a complex uh, dominant uh, model or system that uh, needs infer inferior countries to they uh, maintain the, their power. So we are fighting for, for not to become a, a, a superpower, just be independent, just be sovereign and try to be happy. That's, that's all. Thank you for that. And it reminds me of something uh, Esther told me once during a, during a, um, a workshop uh, that uh, even the principle of non-repetition is crucial reparation so just halting imperialism itself is part of preparation so I I, I think it's, um, I like it how you describe uh, the, the very um, uh, sovereign independence struggle of Venezuela as, as a reparations project in itself um, I'm, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna get back to you later um, but I want to go first to uh, Samir. Uh, so for you, more or less the same que question could you speak uh, to some of the colonial damages? Uh, that you have seen uh, in Palestine and how that continues to work today, and also feel, feel free to collect uh, to connect that to uh, broader struggles uh, across Western Asia or the global south. The ongoing uh, colonization of Palestine is similar to the ongoing colonization in Africa and other places. Uh, however, the difference is that in Palestine, as Esther mentioned before, we are also subjected not only to the ongoing daily uh, disruption of life, but the denial of the existence of the Palestinians as a whole, the systematic destruction of uh, the Palestinian culture, Palestinian homes and villages, and the replacement of uh, obviously the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians that started uh, long before even the establishment of Israel in 1948, uh, and the replacement of the population, the native population of Palestine with an imported uh, population from Europe and other places. So uh, the, the struggle or the colonization of Palestine is continuing. 
it hasn't abated, it hasn't slowed down. In fact, I think it is even uh, more intensive now than before. For example, let me give you uh, some statistics and brief statistics. Um, when you talk about uh, the two-state solution, for example, uh, the assumption here is that Israel, which occupied 78% of the total land mass of Palestine, all right, will keep that land mass and also continues to encroach on what is to be the Palestinian state on 22% of the land mass of historic Palestine. If you look at it today, the historic mass, the land mass of the West Bank has been also 60% of the land mass of the West Bank has been taken over by Israel. So 60% of the 22% has been taken over. The 40%, the remaining 40% has been disjointed, has been rendered almost uh, not contig contiguous, Palestinians cannot go from one place to the other without going through military checkpoints, without going through searches and seizures, without being threatened with their lives if they are to disobey an order. So the entire life of the Palestinians has been literally uh, disrupted. Their daily life has been disrupted. They have been cut off of their cultural capital, which is Jerusalem. A Palestinian cannot go to Jerusalem if they do not have a permit. And the permit does not take, does not come easy. If you are to go to your holy place, whether it's a church or a mosque, you are being dehumanized systematically. You are being attacked systematically. Uh, you're, if you are a student and you go to a university, uh, your trip to the university could turn into a nightmare. You could be attacked outside of the university. You could be attacked inside of the university. Uh, in your own home, where you are supposed to be secure and at peace, uh, you could be literally, your night could be turned into a nightmare. They could come in without cause, enter your own home, uh, wake up everybody, including children, uh, dehumanize the man of the house in front of his wife, in front of his children, uh, collect all the food stuff in the house, 
and just pour it on top of each other, just to render it useless. These are the kind of things that colonialism, dehumanizing as Esther said before, has been ongoing in Palestine. The ethnocide on the Palestinian culture has been ongoing in Palestine. The taking away of land has been going ongoing in Palestine. Uh, there's nothing that that in the Palestinian life has not been affected by Israeli colonization. Now, the question is, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? And that's really the question that uh, every human being has to ponder on is it permissible in the 21st century to continue with this kind of criminality? We're not talking about the institutionalization of discrimination, the institutionalization of keeping ethnic, ethnic groups apart from each other, which is apartheid. We are not talking about taking only the land, but we are talking about the continuous destruction of the human spirit that the Palestinians are subjected to on a daily basis. Uh, we even, uh, with all of these criminalities that we are subjected to, we still maintain that somehow, uh, the human spirit has to triumph. Somehow, that the people around the world are becoming aware of what's going on. They are more in tune to the criminality that Israel is inflicting on the Palestinians. And therefore, a new approach to combating this kind of a criminality is emerging, is evolving. The issue, how do we combat uh, a nuclear uh, country that is armed to the, to the teeth, that is being marketed the world over as the protector of Jews and Judaism, all right? And if you are to criticize Israel, you are automatically labeled an anti-Semite, and therefore you shouldn't be allowed to, uh, to present your case. In fact, you should be shut off completely, and your story should not be told. All of these things, uh, with all of these things, we still, come and say, there is a way out of this. There is uh, a way out of this for the sake, not only for the sake of the Palestinian people, but even for the sake of the Jews themselves. Because what Israel is doing is doing it in the name of Jews. And most Jews have nothing to do with what Israel is doing to the Palestinians. 
So in a, in a way, some of us Palestinians have been asking and appealing to conscientious Jews to join us in this struggle and to come together and say to, the, to, to Israel first, enough is enough, not in our names, and to go on and provide an alternative solution to what's taking place, to what exists. And that's why I think for the last 15 years or so, we have been concentrating on the idea of one democratic state in Palestine that will replace the settler colonial apartheid system that exists today. Uh, I don't know if you want me to continue because I, do you want uh, me to continue? I, I will come back to you uh, in, in a bit. I think this gives a very clear uh, exposition uh, of the damages. And I think your explanation why a two-state solution won't work is very clear. It's not a, uh, we, cannot, we cannot have the solution where there's still an apartheid state where refugees cannot return to their homes. Um, and, but I, I wanted to use actually this as a bridge to, to also go back to Esther. Um, because the two-state solution is, of course, something that has been uh, kind of lobbied for and proposed by, by states uh, across the globe for quite some time. And uh, the Palestinian struggle, and you specifically, Samir, have, have played a, a, an important role in challenging that. Uh, but I know, Esther, you have also been critical uh, within your specific context um, of some reparation plans, specifically from CARICOM. Um, and uh, I wanted to hear from you um, uh, why you critique that specific plan, what you consider a better plan, but also to, co to connect this with the, the story of Samir, also the, the danger of uh, these kind of false solutions being proposed to co-opt our struggles. Uh, I believe you're muted. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, okay, great. So yes, um, just to state, first of all, that my parents were both born in the Caribbean and that I am also a Caribbean citizen legally, not just not just by descent. So I, I premise my I say that first in terms of my comments and therefore my my um standing to make the comments that I'm making. The CARICOM um reparations initiative and in particular, the CARICOM 10-point plan um, uh, has been uh, critiqued and um, by social movements from below who are not often heard. And um, the corporate media just presents the CARICOM 10-point plan as though it is accepted unconditionally by the African Caribbean masses, um, both within the Caribbean, but also those of us who are part of diasporas outside. And this is untrue. It was first really kind of um, promoted to the public in 2014. And um, the process of actually coming up with that plan um, was done in a very untransparent and undemocratic way and wasn't actually based on uh, consulting with the, if we're going to say, Caribbean citizenries. Uh, it was produced in particular 
by um, scholars at the University of the West Indies, and in particular, Professor Sir Hilary Beckles, and it then was presented as what the Caribbean should actually be uh, embarking on in terms of reparations. The ordinary masses who have been the ones championing reparations from the time we were kidnapped uh, from the shores of Africa in the 1400s were totally excluded from this process. What then began to happen was that the states in some countries, not all, uh, began to appoint reparations commissions and appoint people uh, who wouldn't challenge the state agenda too much to those commissions. And I am working with many activists on the ground uh, from below in Guyana, in Barbados, in countries like Belize, where they have been challenging CARICOM governments around the fact that they do not have voice, they are not represented. And what we have are state actors, in particular um, academic elites, who are speaking for the masses of the people. Now, social movements are the ones that have to bring about this change. And rather than supporting the movements from below, as we have seen in some of the contested struggles in Abiyala, um, the so-called Americas, we don't have that in the Caribbean region, where if you like the, the state actors trample on uh, the voices of those who traditionally have championed reparatory justice, such as Rastafari, many uh, black uh, power groups, many Pan-African groups who are marginalized in this process. Don't get a, a look in, their voices are not carried by the, the media in the Caribbean and certainly the international media. One of the things that we're talking about decolonial reparations, the CARICOM 10 point plan is not decolonial. It actually is a development plan and they state this, the CARICOM academic leaders of part of the CARICOM Reparations Commission state it is a development strategy. And anyone who knows anything about reparations, conventional reparations, even under international law so-called, knows that reparations and development are not the same thing. The right to reparations, the right to a remedy and reparations in terms of international law and in particular international human rights law and international humanitarian law is a right of peoples, not nation states and certainly not neoliberal nation states that were a, a, a that continue to be a legacy of European colonization. The very fact that these states exist, they were not created by the indigenous peoples of that region who are silenced and marginalized by the way, nor were they created or envisioned by the African majority populations that we find in many Caribbean nation states. And what is therefore not recognized is that part of the largely untold um, history of reparations is the struggle, not only for what people envision reparations to be, of which there are different ideas, but also the struggle between distinct classes. Uh, and, and I would say African heritage or black uh, classes, classes, social classes racialized as black over the strategies for citizenship, for what the nation looks like, and also the right to envision the racial future. So the CARICOM 10 point plan is premised on that ethnocide, that genocide, that racial, um, the deracination that has happened and continues as, as part of uh, creating what is called a Caribbean civilization. 
which is an amalgamation of all the different peoples that make up that region. But within it, the African voices has largely been, the African identity, culture, personality has largely been subjugated on the basis of a so-called uh, multi-ethnic state that is still privileging European domination and ideas and cultural supremacy. And so that is the issue with the CARICOM 10-point plan. It is substituting uh, reparations for development and all of the experts who talk about the distinctions, even though they can work together, there are distinctions that development is not a substitute for reparations because development is something that all citizens of a particular territory, region, country are entitled to shape together. Reparations is a specific remedy according to the specific violations and human rights dispossessions and people's dispossessions that an affected community has. And so that's really what the issue is there. And as I said, it reinforces this notion of a Caribbean civilization, uh, whereas uh, prior to that in the 1990s, Again, we had with states, the, Afri the Organization of African Unity, uh, something called uh, the Abuja Conference in 1993, which linked the Caribbean in with not only Africa, but the, uh, in Abyayala and the African presence globally. So even though it was a state-led initiative, what they did is they recognized um, the, the, the non-governmental kind of basis of that African struggle and African states were therefore seen as being supportive of those movements from below over which as with any social movements, there are always contestations. What we have now is uh, uh, the European uh, kind of promotion of a Caribbean intelligentsia, a CARICOM 10-point plan, which reinforces uh, the world order as it is. It doesn't disrupt that. It maintains the coloniality in the region. It maintains the colonial borders. It does not undo the harms. It doesn't stop the imperialism and that coloniality that still is maintained by existing states, which I have to say are fragile states. I mean, if we were to take the Caribbean, or the CARICOM nation states uh, uh, in terms of their economic power and uh, potential and growth. Uh, the member states control together about $78 billion worth of in terms of the economic figure, but which would place the region 65th in the world if it was a single country. So we have a small section of the African diaspora population making decisions which actually uh, stem from the trafficking, uh, the, the prisoners of war that were taken from the continent of Africa and dispersals of the population. That is the basis of the Caribbean claim. Even though they talk about native genocide, as I said, it's very marginalized within the Caribbean um, CARICOM 10-point plan. So they're taking an African struggle, reducing it to a Caribbean regional struggle, and on that basis, producing so-called academic research, which actually elevates the Caribbean above Africa, 
above all other sections of the African diaspora, when we know that the population in the region is about 16 million people. The population of people of African descent in Europe is about the same amount. And half of the population of the Caribbean live outside. We as citizens, and I am one, parent, mother born in Guyana, South Abiyala, so-called South America, father born in Barbados, have never been consulted. Yet our resources, remittances, help to create development in the region. So it actually contravenes. The CARICOM 10-point plan does not even recognize international law, the five principles of reparations under international law, and it doesn't recognize the rights of peoples, and in particular, the African majority who are reclaiming or going through a process of ethnogenesis in terms of uh, reorientating ourselves as to our African identities. I'm not just a Barbadian or a so-called Guyanese because the root of my identity is from Africa and the Caribbean context actually only works when you suppress, you actually maintain the ethnocide and the genocide and therefore erase the memories of those of us whose claim to reparations begins with our ancestors. And so the end result of that is that we have deals being made, private deals, largely between uh, families of uh, European enslavers and colonizers behind the backs of ordinary people, symbolic tokens, like in the case of the Trevelyan <clears throat> family, a British aristocratic family who just done, you know, there was some deal, an apology, and they set up a fund for a hundred thousand pounds in Grenada. And this is what is passing as reparations. Yes, these tokenistic, uh, charitable, almost gifts back to the Caribbean that are not actually disrupting racial capitalism. They are not disrupting the actual reorder, the way in which the world was reordered. And we were redefined as a way of keeping us poor and powerless so that we would not connect our struggles to the natural kind of relations that we had because if we all do the genealogical research, and now that is possible, there's also DNA testing, which I'm not advocating, we know that who we are as Caribbean people is not different from those African indigenous uh, ethnicities and nationalities that are on the continent of Africa, that are also in the diaspora. We talk about Abiyala, huge Yoruba descended population that are not being recognized in uh, this process of elevating a, uh, a neoliberal status development plan as reparations, as justice for those of us who are also persecuted in terms of the denial of our rights to envision what Caribbean states would look like, who we, we do not, uh, uh, we don't experience full citizenship. Uh, there is still a, a legacy of authoritarian leadership uh, that is elitist uh, and, and therefore those that challenge that can easily be uh, eradicated as we saw in the case of the assassination of Walter Rodney who was very much championing these same ideas and there are many other examples of that that it's just that they're not very well known. May I interject for a second? 
Of course, Samir. I think reparation is a, a sexy term uh, that a lot of people pay uh, parrot without uh, understanding what entails. We are not talking here about financial compensation, as Esther said. We are literally talking about uh, bringing about a system that holds what exists accountable to the actions and the crimes that took place prior to this point and a determination to restore justice to those who have been, uh, to say it mildly, screwed up by the system. Uh, we are talking about accountability first. If women were not allowed to vote and participate in the system, then that system has to go. If, Afro, if, African, if Africans in the Caribbean were not allowed to participate as equal citizens in the system, that system has to go because how can you restore rights to these people with a system that has been literally continuously discriminating against them? In the case of the Palestinians, for example, how can you restore a settler colonial apartheid system in order to restore the rights of the Palestinians. You can't. You literally have to dismantle the system completely and build a new system whereby A, the, the, the main focus of the, of the new system should be restoring the rights of the indigenous people in their homeland. I'm not interested in restoring the rights of a Romanian Jew in Palestine. A Romanian Jew should go to Romania and restore his rights or her rights. They should go back to Poland. They should go back to Russia, all right? But I am interested in dismantling this apartheid settler colonial system that literally deny my being deny my connection to my homeland and restore the rights of those 7 million refugees that have been kicked out, expelled, denied their basic rights in their own homeland. Once that is done, then come back to me and talk about how we could build together, how we could exist together, how we could uh, romance together, all right? Unless that point is done, we are talking about liberal, liberal democracy that is getting, that by the way, got us to this point, all right? We are unable to move, to move beyond this, and get out of the box because we are always curtailed 
by these, uh, call them whatever you want to call them, to think, to, th to group think, to think like us, like us Europeans. Guys, the culture of Palestine has been destroyed. That's ethnocide. The people of Palestine, their lives has been literally dismantled, destroyed. Talk to me how to restore dignity to them. Talk to me how to restore their presence and their own to, to cease to be refugees, to return to their homes and to be normal beings. Once you talk to me about that, then yes, I will be magnanimous and say, okay, if you accept our rights, if you accept to restore our rights, then yeah, we could talk about a formula whereby we could sit down together and build a new place. But before that, sorry guys, uh, nothing is going to happen. Nothing is going to be re resolved. And your criminality will continue. Thank we you. the Palestinians have been literally uh, chipped on by Israel on a daily basis. Our presence is threatened. Our lives is threatened. Our homes are threatened. Our culture is threatened. And even then we say, okay, guys, if you accept our rights, if you are willing to accept our rights as a human beings, we are willing to, to even compromise and build a place that is good for all of us that agree with this notion. But those who do not agree with us and they want to continue dominating and controlling our lives, there is no place for them in our midst. I hope I summarized what Esther was trying to say. That was a very connection. It also connects to the last verse you said that Yermo, of course, said, you know, reparations are not about revenge, as you say, as well, but it's about restoring the balance. And now, then we can talk about living together. But for that, exactly. Um, I have so many more questions that I wanted to ask you, but I also want to give our audience uh, a chance to chip in. Um, so I already see one hand going off. Um, I'm, I'm going to go there. Uh, oh. Okay. Just a second. Perhaps you want to come here for the question until the mic is served. Oh, okay. Can you, can you hear me from this mic, by the way, on the Zoom? I guess that's the no. Yeah, we are about the preparation. I think that is colonizers with the colonizers. After direct colonization, the damage that neocolonialism have done 
to the neocolonists who are nominally independent, but they are still dominated economically, politically, culturally by their former colonizers. And to repair the damage that they have done, we cannot depend on the colonizers and the former colonizers who still control the international bodies like the United Nations. It cannot be repaired through compensation, monetary compensation, no. The neo-colonists must free themselves by rising up. They seize in power. The, the working people must seize power. Governmental power to be free from the things of the former colonizers and the new colonizers. Use the resources of our countries, develop the economy to serve the interests of their own people. We cannot depend, we cannot depend on the international institutions right now. Who are these international institutions around the UN, etc., etc. IMF, World Bank, they're controlled by the US, the northern countries or colonizers are now neo-colonizers. The people have to rise up, seize political power, and use the resources of their own country to industrialize, to modernize, to, to create jobs for their own people. You know, the Philippines, first, I think we should understand um, neocolonialism, how it concretely operates. I come from the Philippines. We are a neocolony of the US. First, we were colonized by Spain, and then the US colonized us. In 1946, the US gave us nominal independence, but continued to dominate us. How? They train local, uh, from the local population and elite, who are their junior partners in, in the economy. No? They, they profit from, like, uh, Maybe you know Dictator Marcos. Cory uh, Aquino replaced her. So we, we thought there was no more dictatorship, we now have democracy. But the Aquino family is a landlord family. It's a local oligarch. They control the uh, sugar, sugar lands. That is, that is allowed by the US for the Philippines to produce sugar. Only export this kind of products, but not to industrialize. Whatever industries in the Philippines have, they are US, Dutch, German, etc. Not Filipino control. Therefore, whatever wealth is created goes back to the US, to Germany, to Holland, etc. That is why 10 million Filipinos are outside of the Philippines. They're in the US, paying here also in Holland, around 30,000. So, 
that is <laughs> well politically they the government is a puppet of the us whoever is becomes president obeys what the us tells them to do the army is trained by the us the officers are trained in west point in the, in the us so that to protect the the system that is existing the economy we have the local uh, compradors and landlords who are junior partners of us corporations in in exploiting the economy and culture we speak english when i was young when we learned abc a is for apple we don't grow apples but you know <laughs> we look up to apples we like we don't have apples, but the U.S. have apples. Wow! So we look up to America. During Christmas, we sing the song, um, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. We don't have snow in the Philippines. We have warm weather, it's good. But yes, I was also, when I came to Holland, I was, uh, I like, I wanted to see snow. But when I experienced snow, oh, it's so cold. I want to go back to the Philippines. <laughs> <laughs> so politically, culturally, and economically, yeah. 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 Thank you. It's a very good place. By the way, if I knew one of the words, give me a, a better explanation. Um, are there also other people? So also, you don't need to ask a question. You can also make a statement. That's totally welcome. Uh, any other questions? Yeah, another statement there. That's that's also welcome. <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. It's short. Perfect. I'll back during the brainstorm session. My name is Max Coffey from uh, Equal Trade Alliance. I have questions for you, the panelists, but also for the audience. And one input on how to stop this system. So first the questions. Can we talk about compensation while the system that is causing the damages is ongoing? Is it, is it better maybe for us to think about how to stop this colonial system? Because it's still going on. The third question is, what enables a group of human beings to dominate another group of human beings? And when you think through the response of the last question is economical power. Someone on the street without money cannot come here and dictate what can happen in this room. But a millionaire can buy this building, and then they can decide there will never be another conference on decolonization here. So economic power is what 
enable a group of people to dominate another group. How do you come to economic power? And that's the, the most important thing I want to communicate. This is why all these wars in the world are, this is why slavery has took place. This is why what we call colonization happens is controlling the raw materials. So if we want to stop this system, we need to create a new one that reduces the economic power of countries that are dominating other countries. So when we go brainstorm, we are working on a new kind of economic system we call, we call trade certification. We will explain it more. And the last thing I want to add, to decolonize in Palestine, to decolonize in Africa, in Venezuela, in all countries that are being dominated today, it's essential and crucial for European to understand that you are part of this decolonization system. You have the power to change this. Don't wait that African organize themselves. Don't wait that Venezuelan organize themselves because they are doing this for centuries already. It's time for European to join this struggle. Desmond Tutu has an interview in uh, College Two. I think you watched the, the program before he died. And he said, apartheid in South Africa didn't stop because of the armed resistance, but it stopped when European, especially Dutch people, start boycotting products coming from South Africa. So please think about that. My advocacy is to involve European in this struggle. If we come together and create these alliances, we can change the old colonial system and create a new one that will be better for the human beings, for the nature, and for our future. That's what I want to say. Continuously take the mic and give a great lecture. Thank you for that. Um, actually, this could be a bridge. So, unless there is a very burning question, no, then I'm, I'm gonna ask the last question. The panelists, and you can also respond maybe to the thing. Um, but um, we are, of course, here in the Netherlands. Um, so the people here today, we will be working on uh, working out how we can do actions, campaigns, uh, what should be included, um, and specifically speaking to our context, are there reparations initiatives that you want to highlight, uh, specific campaigns that you want to highlight, and specific ways that you think that people here can be in solidarity uh, with those struggles? Um, because that's actually the goal of, of this whole conference, of course, that we don't just keep talking about reparations, but we get to the actual work. 
Um, so uh, maybe starting with you, Guillermo, because you were the last, um, uh, I haven't heard from you for the longest time, so I wanted to give you the, the word first. Right. I think to be uh, short, the very first thing you have to do is to recognize which civilization we are living in, to recognize we are living in a society where capital is before people. And we have to change that. It is a society in, uh, based on classism, in racism, patriarchal system, and the, that's the enemy. That's the thing we have to combat. And that's a, if we are clear about this uh, feature of the society and we attack that, uh, we combat colonial system. Uh, one of the things that the revolution in Venezuela is trying to do by creating this uh, proud of the people, this identity in the people, is to recognize that we have a, a way to see the, the, the world, we have a view of the world, and we want respect about that. We, I, I think I, I like Amsterdam, for example. Uh, I have a dinner in Amsterdam would be nice, but I don't want Caracas to be like Amsterdam. Uh, so we, what we want is respect to our own view of life, own view of uh, of of living the, the the this society, and we are trying to create a new society in Venezuela, uh, where to 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 make people living in a better way, not like an American, not like an European, but like a happy Venezuelan people uh, who respect each other, who tolerate each other, and who feel uh, a sense of, of proud of what we are. So that's important of, of changing the, the, the way we, we teach history. That's the way we, it's important to change the way we teach geography. It, before revolution, for example, for a Venezuela, common Venezuela, the Caribbean doesn't exist. So we have we we have a coast in Venezuela, and the rest is Caribbean Sea. Something you know, areas that it's not. There are no people there. There are no islands. There are no countries there. And one of the things that Chavez uh, insisted was to put us on the on the globe and to uh, teach the people there are other cultures. There are other uh, uh, people around uh, that we have to respect, but we want respect from them. I think it's important uh, for us to make people understand what we are doing, what we are, uh, to know our truth, who come here and to see by themselves what we are doing here. If you come here to Venezuela, you will see troubles. You will see a, a crazy economy. You will see uh, a problem in the infrastructure, but we, you, you will see a people fighting for getting a better uh, country and fighting against imperialism, fighting against uh, a, a, a system in which one country can uh, dictate how we live. Um, it's incredible that the United States want to change our government and they try to do uh, whatever they can uh, by, by doing sanctions, by economic sanctions, et cetera, just to make people suffer and change their mind. And uh, somehow the United States can do that because Europeans will follow that and other countries will follow that. And, uh, but we, ha we have allies anyway, and things are changing in the world. Um, 
and we have to see that with uh, some optimistic way. So things are changing. The United States are a decline in uh, power, a decline empire, and uh, of course it's getting more dangerous because it's a hurt animal, you know, trying to, to, to survive. Um, but unity is the key word, unity. We have to, to understand that the Palestinian cause is our cause. The African cause is our cause. And the Venezuelan cause is your cause. Uh, so we are together fighting imperialism and fighting a civilization of death, which is the modernity, which is capitalism. Thank you. Thank you, uh, beautiful statement. Letting the dividing rule tactics conquer us. Samir, for you, um, the, the same question, um, specifically, uh, if you have a message for the people here who are here in the Netherlands and we're going to be uh, creating demands, uh, creating campaign ideas, if there's a, a campaign you want to highlight and how people here can be in solidarity with that. I think your mic is uh, muted. Your mic is still muted. Uh, okay, okay. My message to everybody, obviously, Esther, Guillermo, and myself have the same cause as Guillermo said. My message to everybody is that we know what exists. Colonialism is brutal. Colonialism is racist. Uh, colonialism is based on the denial of basic rights to the others. What we want, we want to be recognized as equal first. And second, we want the people to give us a chance to share our views on what we think is right. For example, in Palestine, we have a settler colonial apartheid state. Both apartheid and settler colonialism are crimes against the humanity. And as a result, this edifice that is built on settler colonialism and apartheid has to be dismantled. So what do we build in its place? We want you to help us build in its place a system that guarantee, that provides guarantees, protect, and defend the equal rights to all, regardless to ethnicity, uh, regardless to sex, regardless to uh, gender, etc., etc., etc. That's why we Palestinians have put have put forth the idea of a one democratic state as the 
system after dismantling apartheid and settler colonialism, which entails restoring the rights of those who have been uh, ethnically cleansed. We are talking about 7 million Palestinians who are in refugee camps. And if they are to come to Holland, by the way, they are viewed by the Dutch government as stateless, as people who are not Palestinians, who are somebody else. We want these people to be recognized as Palestinians and to return to their homes. What also we have in a settler colonial apartheid Israel, we have a military state that thrives on violence, that thrives on racism, that thrives on expansion. Racism, violence, and expansion does not bode good for peace and tranquility in the region or the world in general. We want to end this militarism in our region. We want to end the arms race in our region. Now, in the case of settler colonial apartheid Israel, as it was in the case of apartheid South Africa, South Africa had six nuclear warheads just before the dismantling of the system. It was literally equipped with nuclear weapons. The nuclear weapons are not to take with you for a picnic. They were intended to be used against the others. Now, in the case of the settler colonial apartheid Israel, it has more than 200 nuclear warheads. Now, it's okay for Israel to have two, 200 nuclear warheads, but it's not okay for Iran to develop its nuclear capabilities. By the way, the only country in the Middle East that threatened to use nuclear warheads is Israel. In 1973, Israel threatened to wipe out Cairo and Damascus. Now, we don't need nuclear warheads in the Middle East. We want literally to lessen the violence. That's why the One Democratic State says, immediately after we establish the One Democratic State, those nuclear warheads should be literally destroyed. We want a free, a free Middle East free of nuclear warheads. In the state that exists today, you have, you cannot literally in certain communities, you cannot have a Muslim living side by side with a Jew or a Christian. It's only exclusively reserved for Jews. In a democratic state, that system has to go. 
people are supposed to be treated and entitled to live where, wherever they go and treated equally under the law. The land that today, the land that is stolen from Palestinians, and it's like almost 85% of the total land mass of Palestine has been stolen from Palestinians and it is reserved for the exclusive use of Jews, Israeli Jews. I'm not talking about Dutch Jews. I'm not talking about Belgian Jews. I'm talking about Israeli Jews. Should that continue? We in the, the new democratic state, we say no. It should be the land mass of Palestine, especially the public land should be used for the benefit of everybody. The natural resources in Palestine today, an Israeli Jew uses five times the water in Israel than the Palestinian in the same, almost the same community. It's not because the Palestinian doesn't need water or doesn't use water, it's because that's how the system works. So the natural resources of the land should be also used equally by the people, regardless to religion or ethnicity or whatever. All of these things that we Palestinians Jews, Christians, and Muslims have been debating for the last 15 or 20 years. It has been debated even a little bit farther in the 60s and the 70s. And as a result, we appeal to you to pay attention to what's taking place today. What is taking place today is not sustainable. It might lead us to Farther violence, it might even lead us to nuclear confrontation in the Middle East, which will engulf everybody else. Do we really want that? Or do we want to pay attention and reverse course, dismantle the evilness of colonialism, settler colonialism and apartheid, and start anew with a new system that guarantees, that provides guarantees and protects the rights to all. In conclusion, I want to make just a simple distinction. When we talk about colonialism, there are many kinds of types of colonialism. The worst of which is settler colonialism. Settler colonialism literally is a transport, First of all, ethnically cleansing the local population, the natives, or, or as in the case of the United States and other places, reducing them to a manageable size. A manageable size, meaning killing 100 million people and leaving 250,000, all right? Because we cannot control 100 million, but we could control 250 and put them in reservations, 
with all the psychological, physical ills that comes with it, because we could control and dominate 250,000 people and transport more people, especially Europeans, in order to take a place and own the land. In Palestine, this is exactly what happened. 80% of the total population of Palestine was ethnically cleansed. The, their homes and properties, their homes were destroyed. Their properties were looted. In fact, Ben-Gurion said, we the Jews were thieves. The property of the Palestinians in 1948 were looted. Their homes were destroyed. My ancestral village, the village of my parents, there's only one house left standing. The entire village was destroyed. Yet we say, let us build again, but let us, let us build it the right way. And we want you to be involved, get involved. Thank you. Thank you, Samir, for that powerful closing statement. Um, your comparison to South Africa and, and your point about settler colonialism also reminds me of how connected all these struggles are. Um, of course, South Africa was also kind of imperialist attack dog in the entire region there. And the same goes for Israel, of course, in the Middle East, but even in, in Latin America, they were supporting right-wing dictatorships. In Africa, the same thing. Um, so yeah, all these struggles are connected and thank you very much um, for that statement. Esther, I wanna give you the final word. Okay, um, yeah, it's been really rich and um, affirming being here and sharing this panel. I, I just wanted to say in terms of um, the campaigning that I'm involved in, I would emphasize to everybody there that it's, for me, education is part of the preparation for reparations. And that's actually one of the mottos of one of the reparations formations that I'm part of. I mean, not, I'm not talking about formal institutionalized education. I mean, the learning that we do, the learning that we do about ourselves, about our struggles, and also the struggles of other people, because all of that, need, we need to, to not only decolonize the, our minds, but also our, our sense of how we connect, how our story connects into the story of other members of the human family. And in that regard, I would really call on people to recognize some of the really um, dynamic and innovative activism coming out of movements for reparatory justice in the UK, um, premised on African reparations, which doesn't just mean African people, but the, the vision of African reparations recognizes that because we are mothers and fathers of human civilization, that our struggle for repair must also catalyze the repair processes of all other peoples who have experienced settler colonialism, forms of uh, you know, colonization, other colonization, enslavement, 
genocide, war crimes, dispossession, et cetera, et cetera. And in that regard, uh, you know, largely we're also a small population. So we don't have this luxury of just talking about us. We've had to unite with others who were also colonized in terms of the British empire. And we all found a commonality in our kind of resistances and being located either in parts of the British, so-called British empire or living in the UK. And in that regard, um, in terms of the African struggle, not only do we want a repaired Africa, which is an Africa in terms of a decolonial reparations, an Africa that doesn't maintain and preserve the borders of 1884, 1885, that actually separate African ethnicities and nationalities from each other today. And so like, um, you know, that's our premise that we need a pan-Africanism that is premised on African indigenous nationhood. And part of our return, uh, you know, to Africa is a spiritual, cultural, but in some cases a physical return. And for people like me in the diaspora, it is a returning to my African lineage and indigeneity, which is not being a Bajan or being a Guyanese, it's about linking into my African ancestry and that global power base so that we can have the power working with others to transform the world. Reparations must transform the world. The, the process of decolonization, settler colonialism, reordering the world, change the world for the worse. Our repair process must change it in the way that we can recognize indigeneity, that we can base our civilization on indigenous knowledge systems of all peoples, that we can have a different way of relating to our home, our mother earth. So part of what we also articulate is that our struggle for restoration of sovereignty can only be premised on the restoration of earth sovereignty, out of which all nationalist struggles come. When our very earth is being raped and pillaged in the name of racial capitalism and so-called modernity and progress, we none of us as separate peoples are guaranteed that freedom, that true self-determination that true exercise of sovereignty um, that we already have been organizing for intergenerationally. So earth sovereignty must be at the, the, the base for all of our struggles. And when we talk about the economy, recognizing that economy is about uh, how we manage the resources of our earth home, mother earth, not having a few thinking that they can just grab everything for themselves, creating models of so-called development, which are really maldevelopment that lead us to a point of worldwide climate and ecological crisis and ecocide, which always has within it genocide and ethnocide of peoples. And so this new world we envision is referred to uh, using indigenous knowledge systems from African people as Ubuntu Dunia. Ubuntu, which recognizes that my humanity as an African woman, you know, with Caribbean connections is connected to the rehumanization and recognizing the humanity of other members of the human family that I share this beautiful planet Mother Earth with. That is the Ubuntu, that our struggles must be connected. And then Dunia is an Nguni term for a multipolar world, a, a pluriversal world. 
So as the Zapatistas argue, a world in which many worlds fit. So it's a multipolar, pluriversal world that is not only anti-imperialist, that is decolonial, that it is actually premised on our own visions of what a nation looks like. And it's not about reinforcing the Westphalian state, uh, the Westminster model of statehood. I'm really very influenced here and, and organizers I work with are influenced by notions that was championed by a Black Panther Party member and co-founder Huey P. Newton, who talks about revolutionary intercommunalism. Because it, because of the nature of empires, the way in which nations are configured, really the sense of nationhood has been very much distorted. So we need to get back to that intercommunal way of relating to each other. And finally, I would say that our repair process, catalyzing and building on other people's repair processes that are also seeking to transform themselves, but also the world, for us, we envision and we define as planet repairs. And what this means is that when we're safeguarding the rights of past generations, our ancestors, our present, ourselves, but also the future generations that must also benefit from our repair struggles, there is a need to proceed from a standpoint of pluriversality that highlights the nexus of cognitive justice. So recognizing that there's been epistemicide, our knowledge systems and our knowledge of how to live in harmony, they've been in many cases eradicated, killed, destroyed, and certainly suppressed. So this nexus of cognitive justice, reparatory justice, but also environmental justice. And therefore, we must repair holistically our relationship with and our inseparability from Mother Earth. That has been part of the destruction. We no longer see Mother Earth as our relations. We no longer see the ecosystems of our, as our living relations. That is due to the epistemicide and how coloniality is still infecting our so-called revolutionary movements. So this uh, inseparability from Mother Earth, from the environment and the pluriverse and therefore giving due recognition to indigenous knowledge systems in contrast with Western-centric or Eurocentric enlightenment ideals that separated humanity from nature and thereby justified exploitation for capital accumulation. Planet repairs. It's not only us as people that have been damaged and harmed and dispossessed. The very Mother Earth, that living body that we are all part of and all her children has also been harmed. And we have largely not, when I say we, I mean the collective humanity, but the nature of how set the colonialism works is that we are denied power. We are denied access to the resources and the right to once again be stewards of our beautiful planet. So please support our campaigns. We have the Stop the Maangamizi campaign, which recognizes the Maangamizi now has impacted all other members of the human family because of that foundational breach of our natural and cosmic laws. And so there's also a campaign that we have, which is called the Planet Repairs 
action learning educational revolution because we need to revolutionize our knowledge systems in every sphere of people activity. And that is uh, bringing together, especially activists and younger people and social movements from across different national struggles where we are all embracing this notion of planet repairs. Thank you. Wow, thank you uh, all three for such uh, powerful closing statements. Uh, I uh, wanna give you a big round of applause. Uh, we, we will definitely uh, include links to, to your campaigns and the work that you're involved in uh, when we send a roundup after the conference. And for now, just thank you so much for joining. Uh, and I hope we, we keep in touch in the future uh, in our struggles. Thank you very much. Okay, that means uh, we have a break. Um, a well-deserved break, I think, to digest everything, uh, both uh, mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally. Um, we have again a very tasty lunch from the Fifth Friday Sisterhood. Uh, we'll be back around two uh, for the next part of the program. Uh, so feel free to go there and uh, grab your lunch. And, uh, and make sure also to, to speak with people you don't know yet so that we can build our connections uh, and uh, build those relations that we need to make this struggle work. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.